Welcome to Conversations from the Collection, a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast was produced on the land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. We pay our deepest respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm your host, Zana Kobayashi, and each episode we'll be diving into a new collection area of the Newcastle Art Gallery to uncover hidden stories from artists who have contributed to the significance of our diverse collection. In our final episode for the season, we visited sculptor Hilary Mays at her gallery Cronenberg Mays Wright, located on a bustling street in East Sydney. Hillary's formative years as an artist began in London, followed by a potent stint in New York during the late 1970s. However, for the last 40 years, she settled in Sydney and enjoyed a highly successful career from yeah. Australia. So this is a gallery, but through, through, like, through the Christmas period, though, I actually use it, as a stu- I use it as a studio. As well, yeah. Wow. Just kind of nice flexibility. That's amazing. Newcastle Art Gallery holds two works by Hilary Mays within its collection, Endgame 2 from 1988 and Boatman from 1994. Hilary's practice has been described as a dedication to the grid, with each of her works starting off from this same point. For more than 30 years, Hilary's worked within this theme, and as we sat down, I was eager to find out how she's been able to maintain her commitment to this one focus. Prior to working in the grid, I'd worked as a student like formalism, and I'd worked with very uh, organic, descriptive works. And at some point uh, around the mid 80s, I started working with a spiral, sort of more iconic or hardwired images that everybody can identify. And then that led into the grid. And so the grid is a sort of very neutral place to, I think I describe it as a support for an emotional investigation. So I have the grid as the framework, which I then invest or work with or work against, you know, because I've worked with the grid now for like over 40, well, since the mid 80s. So it's very much an ongoing investigation. And I think what I've found of working with the grid is the more restraint, the narrower your research, the kind of richer and the, the freedom. There's a kind of wonderful freedom within such a tight framework. Mm. And I've never really lost that sort of passion or engagement with the grid. And the grid is the starting point for all of your works. Is that correct? Yes, yes. yes. Although, I mean, all the grids differ. So it's not like, I, you know, I have... Every, every grid is slightly different. So when I, when I make a work, I don't do preliminary drawings or anything. It's like just mo- moving the wood or the linear elements around on the floor. And then it, it slowly takes shape. It finds its scale. It finds its uh, uh, relationships within the work. So I then physically make that work, physically make the structure. And then there's a whole other process then of, of painting or, or interacting with that form, mm. that structure. Yes, your works have been referred to as sculptures or constructions. Mm-hmm. How do you refer to your works? I refer to them as sculpture. I mean, I mean, my original studies were in sculpture three dimensions and the grid or how I use the grid is like a shallow, like a compression of a form. And often the grids lean in, in physical space. So they're actually inhabiting the same space as the viewer. So again, that's that sculptural space. Also, 
the, the way the structures work, I think when you move around the grid or backwards and forwards from the grid, you physically engage with it. Mm. The grid also, my, the largest grids I make are always approximately six foot square, which refer to my own body scale or, or the uh, Vitruvian man, you know, the spread eagled man. So there is a bodily reference in, in the scale of the works. Mm. Yes, the Vitruvian man, that's Da Vinci. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's the, also the scale of your own body, is Yes, well, of yeah. the average human body. So, you know, a lot of my works actually had at one time a sort of diagonal shadow presence within the work, which refers to that human presence. Mm. Also, the fact that the grids lean against the wall, there's that kind of shadow play of what's behind the grid. So when I first started working in the grid, I was very much thinking about transition points, gateways, sort of denial of entry or entry points. So again, that leaning, that sense of leaning and what's on the other side was really important. Mm. But now sometimes the grids lean and sometimes they hang, just depending. I relate it to how a shell grows or a leaf where there's ruptures, ruptures in the environment or ruptures in its environment where the colour might have changed or the system of markings have changed. And so my work carries that is I'm, I'm looking at the system of its growth mm. and then the system I paint it with overlays that, reinforces that maybe. Yes, because I read that the on growth and form by the Scottish mathematical biologist Darcy Wentworth Thompson is said to be one of the many influences upon your practice. So is, is that sort of referring to yes, that text to and that. those ideas yes. around growth yeah. and the systems around growth? Yeah, and that the growth is a display of a history of an object. Well, it's not an object, it's, it's a natural form, but I'm using it within my objects. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and despite being based in sort of mathematical forms, your works actually speak to really strong personal narratives, don't they? Yes, and that's why they are like vehicle for that overlay so it's something that's a grid a square everything everything that everybody recognizes a place of harmony no hierarchy there's no right way up or right way down and just to I suppose I start engaging with the structure there's always an emotional starting point as I said no preliminary drawings and the thing just grows evolves and I suppose there's a certain point where it has its own autonomy and I know it's finished mm-hmm. but it's a very I suppose it's quite an emotional journey, actually, working with the workers. I work very slowly, so I kind of work on a work for kind of months or even years before it actually, I'm happy with whether it's reached its point. Yes, Yes, of autonomy. (laughs) Yes. It's always difficult to know when something's finished, you know, and you often see artists who just go, oh, they should have left it at that point, you know. Just one, yes. one touch less. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, I've, I've heard you speak about um, that constraint is freedom and restraint is focus. Yeah, my practice, I suppose, has been that and it's been enormously... I suppose the more focus, the more depth. I mean, you just go further and further into its possibilities. So you, you, you'll manage to articulate any possible extemporization. I suppose it's a bit like music or it's like working with a score. Some people have actually responded it like they do actually look like musical scores. You could actually play it. Have yeah. you ever had anybody play? I have a few people who are interested in actually actually... There was a concert in Tarawara in Victoria where they played music to the work, which was such an amazing experience to actually have that happen. Wow. So it was a concert within my exhibition 
responding to the works in the exhibition, which was quite wonderful. That sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was. I'd also want to say about the grid that the emotional content's often autobiographical. Yes. Even though it's not important for the viewer to know, I suppose, the backstory, but there's, there is that element that runs through the works. Do you share those backstories often with your work or is it rarely rarely, rarely. in fact there's a work at, at the know my name which has quite a big backstory and i've only really just started talking about it to the curators there and that was you know made in the mid 80s so wow i mean sometimes a title will will be an indicator but i mean i'd rather the audience just came to their own conclusions rather than being prescriptive about what you're supposed to be looking at or what you're feeling it is a decision that artists have to make sometimes mm, isn't yeah, it yeah um i'm always i'm so curious about the human story so i <laughs> i'm always like give me give, give me, me everything more. i want yes. to know everything that was happening yeah. then um but i i also understand the argument for yes because then it becomes prescriptive you're mm. saying exactly what it was about then you sort of almost directing your view or how to respond. Mm. So it's a, a gentle balance between those mm. elements. Mm. Yeah. Now I wanted to jump into your training mm -hmm. at uh, Winchester School of Art and the Slade School of Fine Art in the UK, both very prestigious schools. Yeah. Um, was this where you first began to work with sculpture? Uh, well, the English education system in the 60s and 70s was uh, really forward thinking. One of the things they introduced was a foundation course, which was the first year which everybody had to do. And you would encounter every possible material or media that you might want to encounter in the future, but you'd never actually encountered it yourself. So that was a great training. And I think through that, I learned that I liked to work physically with objects and making problem solving all the things that sculpture give you. So that meant that when I went to Winchester, I studied sculpture. But because of my sort of long abiding interest in color, my MA at Slade was in painting because I wanted to, to straddle both. Yeah. And you know, we were talking about my working as a sculptor and this shallow relief, this contained shallow relief. A lot of my later works have involved a canvas which I call the duality works, where the canvas actually is a painting of the sculpture. Mm. So I'm doing a, one thing is the physical reality, and then the other, the painting on the right, is a rendition of that sculpture and all the slippages that happen between three dimensions and two dimensions. So I love that sort of slippage between that because mm. there always is that slippage. And even my paintings have a sculptural element. In fact, they tend to be deep and they often involve edges. So there, there is an objectness even within the painting. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. I read that when you were at art school, uh, drawing became very foundational to your mm -hmm. learnings there. I think I read somewhere you were drawing from nine till five. Yes, and that was part of the course. That was part of the discipline, which seems insane now. I don't, <laughs> but you know, that was all you were allowed to do. But it was really... Uh, in hindsight, it was of huge benefit. I remember listening to a lecture by uh, Bridget Riley, and she also talked about years of life drawing and that sense of perspective and placement and, I suppose, dynamics across a paper. I mean, it's very informative and a really great discipline. I mean, I don't draw anymore, but... 
Well, I had read that you refer to your practices sometimes drawing with wood on yes, the floor. Yes, drawing so with that the material. You're still kind of bringing that training through. That. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you explain to me when I was trying to picture what that, you know, looked like when you say that you're drawing with wood on the floor? Well, I'm, I'm just sort of lay. I mean, I work with this particular uh, units of wood, long units, which are laid on the floor and I just move them around on the floor. I remember reading about David Smith and he worked that way and I thought that's a good way of drawing flat. Because prior to that, I was a welder where I'm working with metal and you, you could easily arc welding. It was much more spontaneous and immediate. Wood is a lot slower because you have to have all the carpentry problems. So again, just taking it flat on the floor, you've got a sort of base to work against. Mm. You were living in London throughout the late 60s and 70s and I've heard you talk about uh, what a huge time of social upheaval that was. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, the recession and blackouts and the three-day week and yes, punk music. Punk, yes, it was really amazing period to be there. I mean, it's, it's interesting to live in places through the worst of times because often that, there's a whole creative surge that happens around it. And of course, you know, the UK in the 60s was a huge musical and fashion leap off point where Brit became, you know, the, the coolest thing. But then there was the three day week and, and uh, it was about saving electricity, people going on strikes, so all businesses were, were reduced to a three day week. And you'd go home and there'd be no electricity, so you'd have to be sort of prepared for just a night in the dark. It was this strange period, a huge inflation, huge unemployment. You could see why punk rose out of that, where people were just totally disenfranchised. They were just left. There was, it was a strange time. But then in retrospect, people refer to it as a golden era because people worked so hard on those three days. <laughs> Got a hell of a lot done. <laughs> what was it like uh, trying to develop a career as an artist during that time? It was a strange time. And that's, I mean, at that time I'd been traveling over to New York and uh, the gallery scene at that time was very much male dominated, males of a certain age. And I thought, you know, I'm never going to get a foothold here. But I was traveling backwards and forwards to New York and uh, I was offered an exhibition in New York and I was still a student at the Slade, but I, I, much to my tutor's kind of like horror, so I started exhibiting in New York. And uh, it was great. It was a great leaping off point. And when I finished my studies, I then moved there. That's right. You uh, received the Boys Scholarship. Yes. Is that right? And yes, you were there for travel. five years. Uh, the Boys Scholarship got me there. And then I, I went to an art school called the New York Studio School and then got a scholarship there. And it was a very potent period. Mm. I was, you know, the luck of being in the right place at the right time. I've read uh, that before your arrival in New York, you had considered yourself a non-gendered artist. Yes. And I was wondering how your time in New York impacted your relationship with feminism. Right. Well, as a non-gendered, I just considered myself an artist. But then living in New York, where, where obviously feminism was, was huge, that was sort of, there was suddenly permission to talk about female things, which there hadn't been in the past. And I really found that really quite liberating and inspiring so I made a lot of works about domestic violence about uh, sexuality so it was it was a particular period of just externalizing those those thoughts and concerns and uh, when I 
moved to Australia and was still making that work, it was still considered like a little bit inappropriate that you <laughs> would be talking about these things. Because I'd come from a very open society to Australia, which was still a little bit close to that discussion at that time. Yes, yes. And you were working in steel at this time? All my English work and American work was all made in steel. I was a welder, and that was that spontaneity of that material. And you could make quite huge works out of fine steel and be able to move around, you know, have that ability to handle it. But then moving to Australia and not actually having a studio and then having, to set, uh, then having a child and having to set a studio at home, that became impractical. So I started working in wood. Mm. And it seemed like a compromise at the time, but it hasn't been. It's, it, I still really enjoy working with wood. In fact, I think the first works that I made in Australia were all made out of the packing cases that actually arrived in here. Oh my God. There was all that material there, so I just started chopping it up and making work. <laughs> Constraint is freedom. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. I had read, actually, and maybe I, maybe I had misunderstood this, but um, that the fact that you were working in steel was considered inappropriate or was it the, your themes? I, I, somebody came to one of, one of my later exhibitions and, and that the criticism was that it was a gendered material and that women shouldn't be working in metal. Oh my goodness, you, it's, you can't even imagine it now. <laughs> yeah, just, just, wow. So although it was from females, they felt that, you know, you, sh- you know, find another, an articulation. I mean, I think I was looking at Linda Bengelis at the time, those wonderful poor works on the floor. And she was work. I think she was working more with paper or cardboard. So she was making wall work. So that happily led into my works that I made here because I had to work with wood which apparently is not gendered (laughs) (laughs) now we can do what the hell we want really (laughs) thank goodness yeah (laughs) i would love to know a little bit more about what your life in new york looked like as an artist ah new york at the time was mainly full of artists because uh it was the 1970s it was um it was very industrial warehouses sweatshops lots of lofts we all lived illegally in different lofts my, my husband at the time was running an art school, so there was an art school community of young students. But there was also a huge community of fellow artists. We'd all hang out in the same bars because everybody sort of lived around Greenwich Village, Soho, East Village. So everything was very local. It, was, it felt like living in Manhattan felt like a village. It was a great community. And people were very generous. You know, you'd get invited over to people's studios. It was a really potent time. Mm. I mean, I go back now and Manhattan looks like, you know, Westfield. You know, it's like a shopping mall. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's wonderful. I mean, I still absolutely love it. But a lot of artists have had to move further and further out, which, of course, happened in Sydney. It happens in any major city, London. You, you know, you just can't afford to live there. Mm. Our first episode for the season, we interviewed Virginia Cuppage, who oh, I understand right. was also there at the same yes, time exactly. as yourself. And yeah. I wanted to know if you had cross paths. Yes, definitely had cross paths. It's funny, Australians, like my husband was Australian, Australians aboard often try not to hang out with each other because then you become this sort of little cliquey little group and it's just better to just be full on where you are, which I totally agreed with. But we did meet Virginia and... Uh, what we did start to do was actually sort of have Saturday afternoons in our loft for orphan Australians so that they could all kind of meet each other and then help, you know, say where to get the 
best materials from or which galleries to approach. So it became sort of like a little community. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd hang out with Virginia. She did wonderful paintings at the time. So mm. it was good. You then moved to Australia in 1981. What prompted your decision to come here? Well, the reason I came was actually my husband, William Wright, was invited to do the 1982 Sydney Biennale. He was a passionate teacher and artist and didn't, didn't have a curatorial background, but was enormously well-informed and well-travelled. And so he was invited to do the Sydney Biennale. So we came to do that. So we came to Australia for two years. He hadn't lived here for 16 or 20 odd years, a bit like Virginia, away for a long time. And we came back and we came back for two and I'm still here. So (laughs) (laughs) we got our claws into you. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, you sort of put down you are where you are and you make the best of where you are and make it work, which we did. And we loved it and had a wonderful life here. What was it that kept you here? Oh, children. Yes. Had children. He was offered a job at the Art Grand New South Wales, assistant director to Edmund Capon. So... We could have gone back to New York, we still had a loft, or we could have gone to Chicago, but that, that was his choice, so mm. I was happy. And I had had the advantage of living in New York and a lot of Australians passing through, so I did know a few people. And I also, on arriving here, realised I was arriving into a huge community of female artists my own age, a huge cohort of very strong, amazing women artists, and that was probably the most exciting thing was oh, this is a, you know, cool place to work. So mm. it was good. And where was your artist's career at that point? Were you sort of in your stride in New York? Or totally. were you still, yes, so you yes, were very so, much in your stride there. Yes, and, so things were yes. really going well there. So it is hard when you do move countries because you, you're back to kind of zero again, <laughs> to start all over again. Was it difficult to build that momentum back uh, up? No, it wasn't, but it it could have been, but Australia was very welcoming and, you know, I did have a strong practice, so I started showing at Rosalind Oxley, so it was fine. Mm. But I I imagine it it could be problematic for people starting from zero again. Absolutely. Mm. I'd love to talk about your two works in Newcastle Art Gallery's collection, uh, beginning with Endgame 2. It's a grid of bright, rich red colouring, and I was wondering if you could Talk to us a little bit about this work. Colour has always been present in my practice. Yes. It was, you know, one, as a student, it was how long is a coloured line? How do you make work that's coloured and three-dimensional? So it was always a key interest. Mm-hmm. And it's, obviously it's, it's continued to be. And in terms of Endgame, I mean, I suppose this is the emotional low to colour and Endgame is this beautiful cadmium red. And it's a work that becomes more dense as you head into the centre of the work. So it's about that very energetic red and that kind of energised, I suppose, accumulation towards the centre of the work. And then there's a little mirror in there where you just catch yourself, which is just like, that's the end. So it's probably one of the rare grids where there's not an equivalence across the grid. You know, it starts with large squares and it slowly gets more and more dense, which was, I think, an interesting work. And I made two works at that time like that. And I'm now almost starting to go back into different densities across the grid. And introducing the mirror into the work was about just how you kind of capture the audience slightly off guard. Mm. So it was just sort of just tucked in there as just a little little point of like, "Mm, yes, 
being watched, end game. Yeah. You've talked about uh, the grid being um, non-hierarchical, and mm-hmm. I was wondering with that work if there's a right way up or a or if it can be shown in any way. It can be ret- rotated. Yes. And I suppose it goes back to working on, on the ground as I work on the ground. So it's equivalent from whatever side you take. Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes if I am working on a grid that's slightly uneven, I will work on it upside down to just check there's no bias. Again, going back to the square being harmony and non-hierarchical, I check that there are no kind of obvious biases as a right-handed person or a left-handed person things tend to cluster in different directions so I while making a work I often rotate it many times working in the round yeah yeah. and from above which must Mm -hmm. give you an interesting perspective yes does the work change once you place it up onto a wall definitely yeah definitely so you're constantly checking on those sort of biases Mm -hmm. yeah you know I've made a work which called divide island which was made for the floor but then for like 10 years, it hung on a wall. Mm. So again, it's got that flexibility of, so if something leans, it can hang or it could just lay on the floor. Mm. I like that flexibility. Mm. I think mm. um, it allows works to respond to the spaces that they're it's, in. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting. Yes, you know, yeah. the joy of the square. Dynamic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your other work within the gallery's collection, Boatman 1994, is comprised of two paired minimalist frames, one in a softer colour than the other. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through this work? Yes, well, it's, it's, it's the most reduced grid I've ever done. So it's actually been taken to its, to its parameters. So all the gridding and the spatial references are all running around the edge of the work. Mm. So it's the most sort of reduced, so there's nothing in the middle. There's just an implied grid by the reference points. So that was a a wonderful work. I enjoyed that work. And thank you for sending me the picture of it because I hadn't seen it in a while. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. And again, it's like two works. So there's often a reference to reflection in my work and those two works do reflect. So there's two of them, so they're... No, what a diptych mm. but they do reference and reflect and inform each other mirror each other yeah in in their spacings or intervals that are on that edge it feels like a very emotional work when i look at that work actually yes because it kind of implies a void mm. and a lot of my works have that i suppose it's a feminist reference it comes from a Miriam shapiro flag where there was just a hole in the middle obviously referring to like a vagina, the, the feminization of it, but also the void or that sort of entry point or exit point. So the boatman is just, it's just one void. It's just empty. But boatman refers to, I suppose, death and dying and traveling through, but I'm not sure it carries that emotion. I think it's just like a pairing back, a kind of clarity. Mm. Maybe it's almost like, looking at death but from a few years away yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, you've spoken about a trip to japan Mm -hmm. uh, that shifted your relationship to the materials that you use and i wondered if you could tell us about that trip. yes it's a wonderful trip i made with some dear friends and uh it was just the honoring of materials you know, that everything was honoured, it was respected. And uh, I was thinking about all the years where I've been sort of working on, on wood sculptures, painting them white, reducing them to almost a blank canvas and then interacting with a colour palette or a system. 
So that sort of inspired me to just let some of the wood break through so that the material has its own colour and then it's, it's in parallel to my intervention with the colours that I'm using. So I really, it was a really interesting point and I'm still working that way now of, mm. of honouring the material. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about when you're working in your studio because I understand you work in the studio alone. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Can you take us through the process of developing a work? It's just like starting on the floor with the wood, moving stuff around. I mean, I, do, I, I work alone because um, I, I'm, I suppose I'm involved with the whole process, so there's no fabrication involved, there's no assistant involved, and I really like that absolute engagement with the work. So it's like from beginning to end, there's only me interacting with it. And I suppose that's how you develop a sort of dialogue with the work and a relationship with the work and that sort of, that thing where works actually start having their own presence. They start informing you about what you should do next. So that's, that's why I like to work alone in the studio. In 2007, you began creating a series titled Tempest and you were producing approximately one work per year or two. Can you tell us about this project and is it still ongoing? Yes, it's ongoing and it's Tempest about the passing of time, almost like a calendar or diaristic process. So it's sort of like marking time. So it's always starting the same proposition of the relationship between a circle and a grid. When they cross over each other, I would use an accumulation of marks. So it was a response to those two forms. And I was interested in always starting with the same proposition every two years approximately, but always having a different outcome. Mm. And so that was a Tempest series. And I think I'm up to eight. And I'm kind of due to probably do another one. Yes. yes. <laughs> but it's, it's, again, quite tight and rigorous. No colour, just blacks, whites, greys. The surface is punctured, so it's, again, looking like a painting, but actually it's an object. You can look through them. I work on the sides. The sides are often a clue to what... The system is on the inside of the work and it's again just the relationship between circles and grids and an accumulation of where they cross mm. and how they cross at what point they cross. But p- trying to produce a different outcome. With the and there's same... always a different outcome with the same proposition. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever shown them all together? Yes, the MCA showed them all together, which was oh, as wonderful. part of your survey exhibition? Yes, yeah, oh. and it was great to see them all together. There was only one that couldn't be there, and that was in Georgia, Russia, and it was, it was, more, it was so expensive to get it out of there that we, we just went with the, the ones we did have <laughs> access to. You've spoken before about the fear of becoming too comfortable as an artist, mm-hmm. and I was wondering how you keep yourself uncomfortable? I think my approach is that each work is the first and last work I ever make. I will only be judged on this, what I'm doing right now. So that certainly keeps you alert. And the other thing is uh, changing scale, just never getting comfortable with the same scale. So I kind of work between large works and then intimate works. So probably four different scales I work from and they all require a different kind of energy and a different kind of focus Mm. you know that some are bodily some are intimate so I think that kind of freshens it up. When I was researching uh, your career you've received a number of awards uh, including the Australia Council Fellowship in Mm -hmm. 1993 and the Blake Prize you won the Blake Prize in 1994 
and the Pollock Krasner Foundation Award in 2000. But I wanted to ask you what the achievement you are most proud of as an artist. Uh -huh. All those things were absolutely wonderful and, and absolutely proud and honoured. But I think what I'm most proud of, and I'm still working, still working, highly engaged, ambitious, loads of work I still want to do and you know you sort of I think when you start you know I've been doing this what I think 40 years it could be 50 years is wow I'm still very happy doing it successful people still want to see my work people still engage with my work so that's proud to remain relevant and people still wanting to engage with what you do mm. well Hilary we've now reached our final question for our interview today uh, and that is, if you could have dinner with any artist from Newcastle Art Gallery's collection, who would it be and why? Well, I, I went through your list of a huge, huge collection. And I have had dinner with many of the artists in there. But what struck me was Bronwyn Oliver. I'd have loved to have seen her. I, I knew Bronwyn, you know, she, she studied in England and we, we met in the early 80s. Wonderful artist, disciplined artist, you know, the work evolved wonderfully. And just so sad at her passing and I often wonder where her head was at when, when that happened. And reflecting on the fact that, you know, as an artist, you, you invest so much emotion into your work. It's your relationship with that work. It is like a relationship. And when you produce a body of work for a show and then you pack it all up and your studio's empty, it really is a really, it can be a really difficult period. You can be really down. And I often think about Bronwyn in that, in that situation. And maybe we could have had a few more chats about her work. And one always wonders whether you were there for people when they needed them mm. or they needed you, you know. So that's who I'd like to see again out of all those women artists. It's a beautiful yeah. response. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I have immensely enjoyed this and thank you for being our final artist for the season. It's okay. been a great honour. Thank you so much for coming and talking with me. It's been really lovely. If you'd like to know more about Hilary and her works in Newcastle Art Gallery's collection, there are links in the show notes or you can visit the gallery's website at nag.org.au. Thank you for joining us for Conversations from the Collection. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and leave us a review to help other listeners find us. We hope you will join us next season as we continue to explore Newcastle Art Gallery's nationally recognised collection. Conversations from the Collection is a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast is supported by the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales.